Hello, everybody, and welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco. And I am Emily Booter. And I'm Charles Hain. It is July 6th, 2017, and on this week's show, is Rotten Tomatoes killing movies? Canon's huge mistake, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, Liz is out of town today, as she mentioned in last week's episode of Indie Film Weekly. It's her birthday? Yes, it's her birthday. Is it today? It is not today. I think it's on Monday. It's on Monday. Well, uh, then happy birthday Monday, Liz. <laughs> you there? Meanwhile, we're all kind of recovering from our 4th of July festivities and weekend. I hope you guys had a good time. It's weird that it's on a Tuesday this year, but... uh in true American fashion, say la vie, right? <laughs> I mean, that means if you have a good job, you got four days off. And if you have a normal job, you worked Monday and then have a weird midweek day off. That's, so we have a normal job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were in on Monday and then we had Tuesday off and now we're back. <laughs> it's been a weird week. But let's jump right into the news. What you got for us? Well, I don't know if any of you guys have been sort of following this whole Rotten Tomatoes controversy that's been going on over the past couple months, but some studios have been getting really butthurt about Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I think butthurt is actually the perfect expression for it, and I'm going to bring you through a series of reasons why. So just to be clear, this is about the website and not being hit in the butt with a Rotten Tomato. Nope. <laughs> And eating rotten tomatoes and having a sore butt after. Oh, no. Oh, no. Neither of those things. This is about the aggregate film review site, Rotten Tomatoes. Thank you for the clarity. I appreciate that. You're welcome. So we're going to jump in and talk about how Baywatch and Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men Tell No Tales were two films that studios predicted would do really well earlier this spring at the box office. But after their dismal freshness ratings hit Rotten Tomatoes' all-powerful tomato meter, the rock-starring lifeguard comedy promptly flopped, and the fifth installment of Disney's long-running Johnny Depp franchise hauled in a quote-unquote soft $46 million. That's the lowest opening for a Pirates movie in 14 years. If you guys can remember, like that, those movies were making hundreds of millions of like at some point, right? On on they were also we good. Yeah, they at were, one point. Yeah, they were good. Which brings up something that we'll get into later. Um, but Deadline reported that insiders close to both of those films blamed Rotten Tomatoes, with Pirates Five and Baywatch respectively earning thirty-two percent and nineteen percent rotten. I find I take issue with that because it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. I think that if the movie's good, it gets a good rating on Rotten Tomatoes. You can't blame the critics. So the sentiment that the studios have in contrast to that is that the critic aggregation site increasingly is slowing down the potential business of popcorn movies. And by popcorn movies, they mean big blockbuster franchises? Mm-hmm. Movies like movies that Brett Ratner would direct or produce. The aforementioned director... Uh, produced the very unfresh Batten vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. Was that last year? Um, and Ratner called Rotten Tomatoes the worst thing that we have in today's movie culture. On the flip side, when you look at Wonder Woman, the film's certified fresh designation became actually a key marketing point for studios. Its 93% Rotten Tomatoes rating actually became somewhat of like a headline in itself. 
And it can't be denied that it may have helped the movie blow past its predicted $65 million debut, instead netting $103.1 million over its opening days in theaters. So what you're saying is like making a good movie that gets good reviews and early buzz can make more people go see the movie? Yes, exactly. Now, that seems like a pretty obvious thing maybe to us, but for studio heads, it's something that they're going to need to kind of wrap their head around as these uh, franchises are sort of growing more and more stale by the month or week, really, at this point. John Penn, who's the chief executive of the movie research firm National Research Group, or the NRG, has actually tracked Rotten Tomatoes' influence on audience behavior since 2010. He says that these scores are almost like a lubricant one way or the other. If it's good, it helps you more than it did in the past, but if it's bad, it hurts you even more. In that sense, it's been proven that if you have a score under 30, it has a 300% greater impact in the volume of review conversations than scores over 70. Is lubricant the right word there? I'm really, really uh, disturbed I, by that. By I would that say force multiplier. It's like a force multiplier is the military term. I would say lubricant, where like if it's bad, it hurts you even more. It's like a lubricant. <laughs> is like th- not the... John Penn, we need to talk. I think it's the, the scientific term. So here's how Rotten Tomatoes actually works. The review aggregator, which collects reviews from more than 2,000 critics, is essentially an algorithm. Critics are asked to rate a movie as fresh or rotten. As answers come in, an average is determined. That average is then displayed as a percentage underneath the movie's title. The studio's argument that Rotten Tomatoes is doing more harm than good certainly has its merits in one sense, because as viewers' attention spans continue to diminish at an alarming rate, an aggregate number is clearly the more attractive option for someone trying to decide whether or not to see a film than, say, reading five or six page-long reviews. In 2014, 28% of all moviegoers said they were checking. In 2016, it's 36%. Teens went from 23% to 34%. That's an enormous jump. So as studios are trying to reconcile with this fact, an independent study commissioned by 20th Century Fox in 2015 titled Rotten Tomatoes and Box Office concluded, The power of Rotten Tomatoes and fast-breaking word of mouth will only get stronger. Many millennials and even Gen Xers now vet every single purchase through the internet, whether it's restaurants, video games, makeup, consumer electronics, or movies. As they get older and comprise an even larger share of total moviegoers, this behavior is unlikely to change. Paramount's president of worldwide distribution marketing, Megan Colligan, said the struggle lies in the fact that it's not word of mouth around the movies anymore, it's word of mouth around the reviews. In an article released earlier this week, Polygon is quick to defend Rotten Tomatoes, saying, It's easy to blame Rotten Tomatoes for a movie not performing well, but it's in no way the website's fault. This isn't a subjective approach to ensuring that one type of movie succeeds while another fails. This is a simple algorithm designed to give audiences the fairest examination of a movie. I have a theory for why the studios might be butthurt. (laughs) Why is that? Now, get this. This is a really radical theory. But I think that this kind of review aggregate service really does favor movies that are actually good. And they're very, unfortunately, being penalized for having films that are not that great. Right. So in a sense, Rotten Tomatoes is actually raising the bar in a lot of ways for studios to make better movies. And uh, it's also good for audiences because they're going out and they're seeing better stuff. And in a way, they may be seeing things that, you know, 
they might be willing to take more of a risk on if, say, an indie gets like a 98% and is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I also think it's sort of a ridiculous argument from the studios because they're trying to argue that, like, well, film reviewers' tastes don't really line up with America's tastes. But I'm like, everybody fucking loves Wonder Woman, right? Like, everybody I know who saw it likes it. I know one person who's like, it's not as good as everyone thinks, and that's the worst I've heard. And all of the reviewers love it because it's a legit fucking good movie right? with maybe an overly long fight scene at the end. And, like, I don't think reviewers want popcorn movies to be, like, tear-jerking indie dramas. I just think they want popcorn movies to be good at being popcorn movies like Dark Knight or Wonder Woman or The Rundown. Totally. And as we'll see in the next segment, that really supports some of the box office numbers that have been coming back this year. But as we're talking about critics, even Richard Brody, the prominent New Yorker film critic, is standing up for Rotten Tomatoes, saying that the state of modern film criticism is exceptionally good, better than ever. There are more knowledgeable, insightful, imaginative, and curious critics around now than there have been since I started reading critics in the late 70s. At the very least, there's much more good criticism readily accessible now because it's online. What's more, Rotten Tomatoes has the merit of putting reviews by critics who write for smaller outlets alongside those who write for more prominent ones, which is all to the good. So now let's take a minute and look at the highest grossing films this year at the halfway point. Not only because it's kind of nice to just take a minute and look back at some of the best films of this year so far, but also because these movies really support the fact that Rotten Tomatoes is having an influence on people going out and seeing them. So as Charles was saying, another side effect of an increase in attention to reviews is that more people are going to go see good movies. Of course, three of the top five top-grossing movies this year are comic book movies, and many aren't as original as we'd like to see, but it's clear audiences are making a point in going to see quality movies. So, let's run down the list. Beauty and the Beast has made $503 million and has a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. You can't beat a kid's movie. Seriously, that it kind of blows the rest of the numbers out of the water, just that sum. But only a 71%, and it wasn't certified fresh. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 comes in at number two. It's made $383 million and has an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wonder Woman comes next, $347 million, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Logan, $226 million, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Fate of the Furious, $225 million, 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Lego Batman Movie, $175 million, 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Get Out, which is great to see that on here, $175 million, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. 99! Yeah. Boss Baby, which is uh, the worst performing on the list as far as Rotten Tomatoes is concerned, has made $173 million and only has a 52%. I mean, it's called Boss Baby. Yep. I'd say that's the Alec Baldwin bump, bringing yeah, it up. Yeah, definitely. Kong Skull Island, $168 million, 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Hidden Figures, $167 million, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. So 7 out of 10 of these movies are certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And there are none present on the list that have a tomato score of under 50%. So none of those are rotten movies. And these are all numbers that are just from the critics' aggregate, not the audience and critics' aggregate. I think this is a really... This conversation is really... I mean, for studios to be bringing this up is pretty pedestrian and petty. 
I mean, I like Brody's point. Like, if if we could prove there was some sort of error in the algorithm where, like, Rotten Tomatoes was unhealthily inflating movies on for the companies that advertised on Rotten Tomatoes, like, that would be something to be pissed about. Like, there are certainly ways where there could be bias, but, like, none of that's come out. It shows you RogerEbert.com in New York Times, and it also shows you, like, Indianapolis Papers. It lets you see a wide perspective of viewpoints of people who've devoted their lives to watching a fuck ton of movies. And honestly, if you're getting like a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, you probably made a pretty shitty movie. Yeah. Yep. So this week, I've got great news for lovers of film's most grandiose format. Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk has received the widest 70 millimeter release in 25 years. Warner Brothers will release the World War II drama at 125 theaters across the country. Nolan actually shot the film in 70mm with cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema, who accomplished an incredible feat. He shot it handheld with IMAX cameras for the first time ever on a feature film. Recently, Nolan told Entertainment Weekly, quote, Hoyt handheld the camera for a few sections of Interstellar very effectively. And then on this, I had to break the news to him that he was going to be doing it for a massive amount of the film. We could get on a small boat with a number of characters and just shoot IMAX as if we were shooting with a GoPro camera. I've never heard that before. Interesting. Dunkirk was shot on a combination of IMAX 65mm and 65mm large format film stock with Panavision and IMAX lenses that provided the ability to shoot at night. Stay tuned for an interview with Hoyt about this laborious process coming to nofilmschool.com. Are you doing that? I'm pretty sure I am. That's awesome jealous tbd that's super cool at one point in time legendary films like lawrence of arabia and ben-hur screened widely in 70 millimeter but the last decade saw a mass conversion to digital projection systems of course and today very few theaters retain 70 millimeter film projectors and if they do want to install them they're incredibly expensive Thankfully, New York is nothing if not full of cinephiles, and you can see Dunkirk on 70mm at a variety of locations, including the Alamo Drafthouse Brooklyn, which is actually right around the corner from the No Film School offices, or AMC Lincoln Square IMAX, City Cinema's East 86th Street, and City Cinema Village's East 7. I'm stoked that it's playing at AMC uh, Lincoln Square because I remember I wanted to go see um, Star Wars Episode 7, right? <laughs> the latest Star Wars movie. Uh, I wanted to see it in 70 millimeter on IMAX, and they didn't have the 70 millimeter IMAX uh, projector uh, installed at that point. But now they do, and Dunkirk is an awesome one to go see on it. I think for the first time. So Charles, what's going on in the world of gear? Well, let's start at the other end of the spectrum. So you know, uh, Nolan is out there shooting seventy millimeter. Meanwhile, Canon has come out with the six D Mark II, and in the middle of twenty seventeen, they have come out with a two thousand dollar camera that is limited to ten eighty p, which is kind of crazy and super dumb. <laughs> um, there's a whole lot of competition in the two thousand dollar camera space. It's the camera most of us can frankly stretch to afford, and. With admittedly mirrorless cameras like the GH5 and the X-T2 doing 4K for like $1,500, $1,600 to have a $2,000 camera, and yes, it has a mirror in it, but uh, that does only 1080 is kind of silly. Now, Canon has long been very clear that they make still cameras that happen to have a video feature that they're not really that excited about. And then they make video cameras like the C100 and the C300 and the C500. And the video features 
in the still cameras are an afterthought. And uh, the, C- the 60 Mark II yet again proves that Canon is really not focused on the video features in those still cameras. And this is mostly an update for the photographers. So for the rest of us, the 5D Mark IV and honestly the 5D Mark III, uh, which have 4K video, or the Mark III, it's an update, but um, are probably worth a look. In an interesting other bit of news, Sackler has updated the ACE line of tripods with a new ACE XL, which is designed for heavier cameras. This is interesting uh, because the ACE line is really designed for the mass market, like the high end of the mass market. But the ACE line is there like, you bought a $2,000 camera, get a nice $800 tripod, tripod. Uh, you see it a lot on DSLR shoots. It's really common. It's great, but it's not going to set you back $5,000 like a top of the line Sackler. And if you want to have a heavier camera, they've always had those $5,000 tripods to support it. What's interesting about the A6L is now Sackler, a very reputable brand, is moving into the like affordable but slightly heavier space, which I think says a lot about where Sackler sees the market going. And I think what Sackler sees is that a lot more of us normal folks are about to be able to upgrade to like a heavier cine-style camera. Right now, I have a normal Ace, and I totally love it. And I think if I upgraded to a bigger camera, or if you're thinking about upgrading to like a C300 Mark II or a Blackmagic Cine or the new EVA1 from Panasonic, which are sort of increasingly becoming within reach for a lot of people, I think the Ace XL is totally worth a look. Uh, and then the last bit of gear news this week, I just want to give a quick shout out to a really well done article that V did this week covering a video from Smarter Every Day that broke down rolling shutter artifacts and why they look so weird. It's a really great breakdown, and it's super useful if you've ever wondered, like, precisely why you get those weird, like, arrow, ninja star, swipey effects with rolling shutter. It really goes step by step into why it looks precisely that kind of weird. Uh, and it does it with a fidget spinner and a propeller, which is awesome. So check it out. If there's one thing I want to see more of, it's fidget spinners. <laughs> Am I too late to that trend? That was, like, two weeks ago. Yeah, I think it's done now. Maybe. We'll see. I don't have one. Do you have one? Have what? A, a fidget, fidget spinner. spinner. Oh, hell no. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's nice that we're all too old for it, as opposed to it being something you guys both have and I'm too old for it. It's like we're all too yeah. old for a fidget spinner. It's like the first time that's ever happened. Yeah, hooray. <laughs> I mean, you know, for me, it's just like a glorified yo-yo. It's also shocking to me that something physical and tangible is now in the zeitgeist for young kids these days. That's true. It's cool in that sense. <laughs> It's still alive, I guess. So anyways, moving on to Ask No Film School this week. Ah, so I'm back with (laughs) Ask No Film School. You're back. Ah. Mete Agar asks, I will shoot a scene in a big room with decor in which I want to make it look like an exterior scene under this sunlight. What would you suggest I use to light? I'm thinking about using an HMI as a single source to get a powerful hard light like the sun. I'm planning to use reflectors to balance the light a little bit in close-ups. So that's a great question, Mete, and I think that's a really great starting place. HMI, natural daylight color, hard shadows, reflectors, I think you're in a great place. The biggest thing that you should start thinking about right now to create artificial daylight is something called the inverse square law. What is the inverse square law? Well, basically, it means that when you double your distance from a light source, the light volume cuts in half. So if you go from like one feet to two feet, it cuts in half. If you go from five feet to 10 feet, it cuts in half. If you go from 1,000 feet to 2,000 feet, it cuts in half. 
But because it only cuts in half from 1,000 to 2,000, when you go from 1,000 to 1,005, it barely changes at all. So that same distance from 5 to 10, that same 5 feet, you notice a big drop-off when you're close to the light. So if you're close to a source, you can really see it because as you move around, it gets brighter and darker. Whereas when you're far from a light, you don't really notice it. You can walk a mile and it doesn't really change. Now, obviously, the biggest, furthest away light source, I mean, I guess stars, but for most of us, the sun is the furthest away light source we deal with. So when we're dealing with the sun, we have like an intuitive gut knowledge that the light shouldn't change that much. I should be able to move around in a field of sunlight without it changing dramatically. And humans have like a, this is like hardwired into us. Um, maybe because like when we were cave people, the two sources of light were fire, which changed a lot when you got close to it, or sun, and maybe it helped us survive. Anyway, we can really tell. You intuitively get the inverse square law. So if you want to fake sunlight, you need to get your source super far away. Number one reason by most movie stages are so big. Right, Because even if you're building like a little apartment room, if you want to fake sunlight in the window, you'll sometimes have your big HMI 20 feet away from the window pointing into that light so that you get a more even drop-off within the room so that somebody can walk around the room without the light changing that dramatically. So my biggest advice is try and figure out how to back that HMI off as far as possible from your scene. You don't need to be hundreds of millions of miles away like the sun. But the further you can back your unit up, the more you're going to be able to make it feel like natural sunlight because as your actors move around within it, the volume isn't going to change dramatically. However, as you back your light away, obviously what happens is the light gets dimmer, right? This is why people always have like big 18Ks on film shoots. So you can have a big 18K and back it 100 feet away and still get something out of it. If you're on a little job and you've got a wall plug, you can use some M18s. So I was, uh, visited a set last week that was a bunch of M18s that are all wall pluggable that were like pushed back 10 feet from a window and did a pretty good job of making it feel like sunlight. Mete, good luck. Let us know how it goes. Great response. Thanks, Charles. Oh, my pleasure. And now moving on to some movies opening this week. On Hulu on July 12th, you can check out Melancholia. This is Lars Van Trier's surreal drama, which follows two sisters who try to mend a strained relationship as a mysterious new planet threatens to collide with Earth. It's a crazy plot. It stars Kirsten Dunst, Charlotte Gainsbourg, and Alexander Skarsgård. In the Trier canon, this takes place right between Antichrist and Nymphomaniac, and I'd say it's probably a good middle ground between the three. I think it's probably the easiest to get through out of those, and it was my favorite of the bunch. Uh, do you think it's the most palpable of the three, Emily? I think so. I think it has a l- it has more um, emotion to grab onto than the other two do. This one's a lot of, I mean, it's relatable. It's about depression. It's about disappointment. It's about existential dread. Yeah, and I think there's less, like, you know, murdering of babies or, like, the themes aren't as viscerally intense they're kind of just more surreal and uh i don't know yeah the circumstance it's it's more haunting than like in your face bloody shit everywhere all the time so coming to netflix is one of my favorite films from last year that got a wide release lion it hits netflix on july 9th and it was nominated for 6 oscars including the best motion picture of the year best performance by an actor in a sporting role and best performance by an actress in a supporting role Oh, and don't forget, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Achievement in Cinematography. It didn't win 
any of those. But the cinematographer Greg Frazier was a serious dark horse to dethrone Linus Sangren in his winning streak for La La Land. I actually interviewed him, and one of the big takeaways was how he wound up using the, the LED lights digital Sputnik in order to shoot Rogue One and Lion, and he used them in different capacities, um, but borrowed one from the other. Um, I thought that was quite interesting. The story follows a five-year-old Indian boy who gets lost on the streets in Calcutta, thousands of kilometers from home. He survives many challenges before being adopted by a couple in Australia. And then, 25 years later, he sets out to find his lost family. It stars Dev Patel, Nicole Kidman, and Rooney Mara. And it's directed by Garth Davis. Uh, Lion was also known on the internet as, Dev Patel got ripped, huh? <laughs> yes. And coming to HBO on July 8th is Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping. <laughs> <laughs> I had to include this one because I'm just a huge Lonely Island fan. And it's also worth noting that their newest venture into production, uh, Lonely Island Classics, will be releasing Brigsby Bear later this month, which I caught at Sundance. And it's hilarious to me that they <laughs> they named themselves Lonely Island's Classics because they literally ripped off Sony Pictures Classics' exact logo and put it before uh, the start of the film. And then Sony Pictures Classics actually ended up acquiring the movie, so now it's going to show Son- Sony Picture Classics and Lonely Island Classics right back to back, and I think that'll be a pretty good gag. Anyways, you can check out their latest feature, Popstar Never Stop, Never Stopping, this week on HBO. The movie's about a former boy band member who does everything in his power to maintain his celebrity status after his solo album is deemed a failure. And in true Andy Samberg fashion, that means yes, he'll do everything and anything. The film stars and features music by Andy Samberg, Jorma Tacone, and Akiva Schaefer, who are all the Lonely Island guys. Uh, Jorma and Akiva jointly directed it, and it has more cameos than I think I've ever seen in a movie ever before. Check it out. And now for the moment I've been waiting for the opportunity to talk about the best movie I've seen so far this year. Um, Hitting theaters on July 7th is a ghost story. And I don't even know how to describe a ghost story. You could say that it's the Rooney, Mara, and Casey Affleck starring movie about a ghost who haunts his living wife covered in a sheet. But that doesn't even begin to encapsulate David Lowry's cinematic apparition. And actually last week I was on a date and somebody... People ask me this all the time. What's your favorite movie that you've seen so far? Usually I scramble and come up with, you know, three or four. But A Ghost Story is the definitive one that I have for that answer now. So thank you, David Lowry. The film is about more than just ghosts. It's a meditation on grief, time, and eternal return. And it will remind you with a heavy heart that you are only passing through this world. The boxy one three three one aspect ratio with the corners rounded off gives each frame of a ghost story a photographic feel, and cinematographer Andrew Droz Palermo indeed treats every frame like a photograph. He pays careful attention to the movement of light and often frames shots with a streaky or dappled light, lending the film the immersive quality of a nostalgic reverie. It also features the best pie-eating scene in all of movie history, and it's a long take, and it captures Rooney Mara devouring a pie like it's the only good thing she has left in this goddamn world. Needless to say... Go see it. Run. And now moving on to upcoming deadlines and events for this week. The first is a grant deadline. It's the World Cinema Fund Production Grant, and the deadline is July 17th. 
This one is for our international listeners. If you have a production company in Latin America, Central America, the Caribbean, Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, or a German production company with a partner in one of those areas, you could get €80,000 for your next narrative feature or documentary. The WCF works to develop and support cinema specifically in regions with a weak film infrastructure, while fostering cultural diversity in German cinemas. The WCF is looking for films that could not be made without additional funding, films that stand out with an unconventional aesthetic approach, that tell powerful stories and transmit an authentic image of their cultural roots. The BAFTA Rowcliffe Writing for Children call has a deadline of July 18th. If you are a UK-based writer with a focus on content for kids, you could be one of three projects selected for a BAFTA showcase and industry introductions for this particular call. The showcase at BAFTA's London headquarters features professional actors and directors, industry introductions, and access to bespoke masterclasses. It also includes an in-depth script report on your complete screenplay, a featured spot on the forum list, and a tailored career planning and profile building session to provide support in navigating the film industry. And now onto festival deadlines. The Portland Film Festival has a deadline on July 7th. This is the early bird deadline, so you get a chance to save some money if you can slip your project in on time. The Portland Film Festival takes place in Portland, Oregon from October 30th to November 5th, 2017. The week-long event is jam-packed with networking, workshops, guest speakers, film premieres, financing talks, director Q&As, and more. It's one of the top 100 reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway, and it's one of the Movie Maker Magazine's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee. The Austin Film Festival has a deadline of July 7th. This is the final deadline, so make sure you meet it. We've talked about this fest a few times before on the show, and it takes place in Austin, Texas from October 26th to November 2nd, 2017. I don't think we really have to convince you why Austin is a great place to be looking at potential festivals to enter your film. The festival has been around for 24 years and is known as the Writers' Festival. That's because accepted filmmakers also have access to Austin Film Festival's Screenwriters Conference, the largest writers' conference in the entire world. I had no idea that was the case. The conference attracts groundbreaking producers, agents, managers, and development executives, as well as countless working screenwriters and filmmakers. And finally, the Omaha Film Festival has a deadline on July 10th. This is also an early bird deadline. And by early bird, boy, do we mean early bird. The festival doesn't happen until March 6th, through the 11th, 2018. It takes place in Omaha, Nebraska, and last year, over $32,000 in prizes were given to winning filmmakers and screenwriters. And now to Liz's favorite section, Weekly Words of Wisdom. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. I'm uh, 27 and a half now. No, not you, Liz. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you give her her gift, Emily? The gift of knowledge. (laughs) All right. Well, in that case, it comes straight from the mouth of Darius Kanji. I spoke to the acclaimed cinematographer who shot Bong Joon-ho's Netflix film Okja on the only digital camera he will deign to operate, the Alexa 65. Netflix gave Bong and Kanji total creative freedom, but there was the minor stipulation that they had to shoot digital. This is only the second time Kanji has ever shot digitally, the first being Michael Haneke's Amour. In addition to talking about the merits of the Alexa 65 and how it compares side by side with shooting film, Kanji had some interesting advice to offer about shooting on practical locations. And here it is. Quote, when you do a practical location, you look mainly at where the energy is coming from according to the scene. You should imagine that you're the actor. 
where's the point of energy? Of course, I'm talking about energy in terms of light energy. If there's daylight, it can be windows, or it can be a mix of artificial light and daylight. I love mixing artificial light and daylight. So every time you get to a practical location, you should ask yourself, where's the main energy of the visual lighting in the scene? And it's very good to have a strong concept or a strong idea of the lighting. Later on, Kanji said, quote, light is sometimes like sound. It can come from the window, from the back alley outside, and in the distance you can hear a parade. I love when you can hear sound in the distance. It's the same thing with light. For example, imagine a room can light another room. Characters are in a room, and the room is actually in the dark. End quote. And my weekly words of wisdom come from an article I wrote this week about Kubrick's use of practical lighting. So, again, another practical piece of advice. (laughs) And I just want to draw attention to how awesome practical lighting can be if you do it right. I've always been a fan of it, but I don't think I've ever really been able to explain why it's been able to do things for me in that way, you know? Do things for you? Mm Mm-hmm. When I did a play or my senior thesis in college, I actually used all practical lighting for a play, which was kind of an interesting thing, and I never really thought about it before. It just seemed right. And um, I think that this article kind of made me realize, you know, why I have that tendency. For me, watching a scene where we can clearly see how each subject is being lit, you know, like from what source, a lamp, a streetlight, whatever, it just launches me into making me feel like I'm actually a part of the movie or actually there. And it's because I know where the light is coming from. I can see the characters kind of duck and dive through the dark points of the scene. And it just makes me, I don't know, it makes me feel like it's more real. You're grounded in the world. Yeah, totally. Entertain the Elk, who created the video essay from which the article references, points out, if the lighting is unbelievable, it will distract and take the audience out of the story. So to see how Kubrick uses practical lighting, you know, in Barry Lyndon, he shot basically all of the interiors with candlelight um, and, you know, was just a huge advocate of practical lighting throughout his entire career. And you should check out the entire video to see uh, some of those examples for yourself. So now we are going to close the show with a little preview of what you can hear next Monday. Emily? Yes. I am going to be talking with the director and two main actors of Thirst Street, which premiered at Tribeca um, Film Festival this year. The bulk of the conversation is between the incredibly prolific independent filmmaker, Nathan Silver, and his lead actress, Lindsay Burge, who you may know from indie hit A Teacher. Nathan talks about how he's managed to make a film every year for the past 10 years, which is kind of damn incredible, um, and what he's looking for when he's working with actors. And Burge talks about taking a very serious risk emotionally in the role for this film. See you on Monday. I can't wait to hear what that risk is. (laughs) As always, you can read all of the stories we talked about, or at least most of the stories that we talked about, and much more on nofilmschool.com. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes if you haven't done it already. It really helps us kind of boost our leverage. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. That, I guess, was an extra long version because I'm overcompensating for the fact that there's not another person here to help me out with it. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow me at El Booter and all of us at No Film School on Twitter. 
Yup. See you next week.